All right, good morning, everyone. Uh, so good to be with you. So good to be able to uh, sing with you and to gather with you, to open up God's word with you and uh, worship our great God together. Uh, I, I got to say that I just love you guys and I love being here. This is one of my favorite churches to visit for a few reasons. Uh, first of all, uh, you guys love to hear God's word. And you strive to apply it to your lives. And uh, you just make it a very uh, easy uh, place to preach at. Um, in addition, I've, I've had good questions asked to me after the service. And uh, just shows that you're really trying to put into practice, uh, put into action what you hear. Uh, also, you guys are passionate about college ministry, having an outreach to San Jose State. And uh, college ministry is something that is near and dear to my heart. Uh, also, you have been the church family that many of my UCLA friends have uh, become a part of, and you've welcomed them with open arms. Uh, you guys take your relationship with God seriously, and uh, that, that overflows into your love for each other, and uh, even your love for me, as I've been able to be a small part of, of popping in now and again and uh, being a part of a couple of retreats. Uh, I remember you guys were just so kind, uh, so welcoming, and I made new friends there. I still have a Lighthouse Bible Church blue flannel blanket that I love. It's super soft, uh, but my son always steals it from me. And uh, last but not least, uh, I love being able to visit this church because you will always be the church that forgave me for showing up half an hour late. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then just don't worry about it. Uh, but actually, another reason I, I love to come here is, as Pastor Mark mentioned, uh, you guys have been one of the, if not the most supportive churches of our upcoming church plant. Uh, from the very beginning, Pastor Mark and many of you have told me that you have been praying for us, you've given us words of encouragement, and you've just shown a lot of love to City Light Bible Church. And just want to give you a brief update on where things are at. Uh, last time I was here, I told you that we were beginning our eight-week training seminar for the core team, and that has now been completed. We've gone over things like evangelism, discipleship, leadership, what is the church, what is a church plan, and we've completed those eight weeks uh, of training with the core team. That was about 50 people, and now uh, we're headed into the summertime, kind of this last phase before the launch, and we're doing some preview services, and we're doing some community outreaches where we're trying to uh, let the people around the church know that we're there, uh, trying to reach people who don't know Christ. And so last Sunday, we had our first preview service at four o'clock in the afternoon, and it was just a big blessing. Uh, it, it was great to see God bring together uh, a lot of the elements that we've been working on, the ministry teams uh, being able to serve, us being able to gather and, and sing to God, to fellowship together. It really started to feel like a church. Uh, in total, we had 82 people come, and 15 of those were new visitors. And out of those 15, three of them were non-believers. And so uh, we really see God using us to do what we've been called to do, and that is reach the unchurched, the very reason that we are planting this church. Uh, so thank you for all of your love and support. Thank you for your prayers. Uh, we're, we're very close to finding a building as well. We're kind of in that last phase where we're negotiating the contract, and so it's going to be a great joy when I can tell you guys and tell everyone where exactly we're going to be meeting as a church. I did bring a few people from the core team here. Maybe core team people, just raise your hand and wave at 
at the fine people of Lighthouse Bible Church. I just thought it'd be good for you guys to get to know them and uh, for them to get to know you. Well, to begin today, uh, I want to talk about my three sons. Nathaniel is eight, Jordan is six, and Owen is three. And uh, more likely than not, me and Linda are done having kids. It's up to God's sovereignty, we know. Uh, He may do mysterious things, but if we had it up to us, then we would be done with our three boys. And so uh, Owen is three years old, and I must admit, because our mindset is we're done having kids, we baby Owen. Uh, we just see this little guy and we say, oh, just, you can stay a baby forever. You know, don't, don't be in any rush to grow up. And Owen is still young enough where he'll sing and he'll dance and he won't care if anyone's watching. It's really awesome, They're really cute. And I hope he just does that forever. Um, there's this one song that he really likes currently, and it's one that you've probably heard of. It goes like this. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. If you're happy and you know it, then your face will surely show it. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. And then it goes on to stomp your feet and shout hooray, and then it gets real crazy with do all three. Well, I wonder if you've heard the Christian version of this song. I remember being in Sunday school and we sang the Christian version of this. Uh, It goes like this. If you're saved and you know it, clap your hands. And then it goes on to stomp your feet and then shout amen. And then it goes on to say something that very simple yet is very profound. If you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. There's actually some good theology there. The point of this simple kid's song is that if you truly are saved, if you truly are a Christian, you're going to show it in some way, whether that's by clapping your hands or stomping your feet or shouting amen. If you're a Christian, there is an outward show of it. The gospel radically transforms your life. So it's true. If you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. Ezekiel 36 says that you have a new heart. Romans 6 says that you have been resurrected to new life. Ephesians 4 says you're a new version of yourself. 2 Corinthians 5 says the old is gone, the new is come. You are a new creation. So can I ask you guys, If I were to interview a non-Christian in your life, a friend, co-worker, family member, and I asked them, what what would you say is a Christian based off of how you act? I wonder what they would say. Would they say, well, a a Christian is uh, someone who wakes up early on Sunday morning and goes to church? They spend a lot of time with church friends. Sometimes they go away for the whole weekend and spend all weekend with their church friends. But other than that, uh, I think a Christian is pretty much the same as me. Or would they say something like, oh, Christians? Oh, they're so different. They talk about different things. Uh, they, They use words that are different. 
They treat people differently. They make life decisions differently. They love differently. They, they're, they're, they're so different. They stand out at work. Is that what they would say? Because that's what they should say. Now turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 13 to 16 this morning. In chapter 2, Peter will call us as Christians strangers and sojourners. He will call us aliens. We are foreign. We are different. We are from another world. We are citizens of heaven, as Paul says, because the gospel makes a radical change in our lives. Once we believe the gospel, our hearts are changed and we're never the same again. And we're going to look at a passage that looks at this change the gospel makes. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The very first word of this passage is the all-important connecting word, therefore. It's a hinge connecting two paragraphs. It's connecting our paragraph, verses 13 to 16, with the previous paragraph, verses 3 to 12. Our passage is based on the previous paragraph. Our passage is building off of the previous paragraph. And so we've got to look at the previous paragraph. To sum up verses 3 to 12, you could call it the greatness of our salvation. The greatness of of our salvation. Paul gives us a glimpse into just how awesome it is to be saved. And follow along as I look at a few verses here that highlight the greatness of our salvation. Verse 3, we receive the great mercy of God. Also verse 3, we're born again to a living hope. Verse 4, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. Verse 8, even though we have not seen him, we now love him. Later in verse 8, we rejoice with joy inexpressible. And then the end of verse 12 tops it all off. Look at the very end of the verse. These are things into which angels long to look. The angels long to look into salvation. The picture is the angels in heaven are looking down at the gospel playing out on earth. Jesus being crucified to a cross for the sins of mankind, shedding his blood for the forgiveness of sins. And these angels looking from above look with great curiosity. They have their necks stretched forward, trying to get a better view. Their, their toes are curled over the edge of heaven because they're so fascinated as to what's going on with the gospel down there. You see, angels don't know what it's like to personally be forgiven. 
Angels never fell. Angels never sinned. And so they never needed to be redeemed. They don't understand saving grace. And so what they see play out with mankind is absolutely amazing to them. They're so captivated, so stunned that God himself would become a man and die a criminal's death to forgive those who have offended him, those who have pushed him away. So by using this word in verse 13, therefore, Peter is saying, because of how great your salvation is, live differently. Because you have this amazing salvation, live differently. The word therefore moves us from truth to application. From the gospel to how to live in light of the gospel. From calling to conduct, from belief to behavior. Because you've tasted of this amazing grace of God, live differently. Because, Christian, you've been shown great mercy, therefore. Because you've been born again into God's family, therefore. Because this isn't your home, you're going to enjoy heaven, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, therefore. Because you love God, therefore. Because you have a joy inexpressible, therefore. Because your salvation is so great that the angels of heaven long to understand it better, therefore. Therefore what? Therefore what? What are we to do? Three commands in our passage. Three commands to obey in light of gospel truth. I'll give them to you up front and then we'll go through them one by one. Consider your future hope, verse 13. Abandon your past life, verse 14. And imitate your holy father, verses 15 to 16. Consider your future hope, abandon your past life, and imitate your holy father. First of all, if you're saved and you know it, consider your future hope. Verse 13, let's read it again. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice how this verse is about your mind. It's about your thinking. Peter says, preparing your minds for action. Get ready to think really hard. Get ready to exercise your mind. Prepare your mind for some active thinking. Secondly, Peter adds, being sober-minded. Now, that, that's quite a word picture. Being sober in your thinking. What's the opposite of being sober? Being drunk. And when someone is drunk, they're not thinking clearly. A good judgment, common sense goes out the window. They, they do stupid things when they're drunk. Uh, when you're drunk, your thinking is dull, drowsy, and disoriented. So being sober-minded is the opposite, being alert, being awake, having good judgment, having clear thinking. 
So at the beginning of verse 13, Peter's saying, get ready for some active thinking, get ready for some clear thinking. Why? Now comes the main verb, the main command of verse 13, really the main point of this verse, so that you can set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, get your mind ready and get your mind clear to contemplate your future hope. Get your mind ready. Get your mind clear so that you can ponder your future hope. Another way Peter says this is to set your hope, fasten your hope, attach your hope, Velcro your hope to the future grace that is coming. Well, what is this future grace that we're attaching our hope to? End of verse 13, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ, is a reference to his second coming. When Jesus will return to this earth, where, where in the future Jesus will be revealed on earth. In fact, that phrase, revelation of Jesus Christ, is the exact same Greek phrase that opens up the book of Revelation, which unfolds the end times, the future events, which culminates in the return of Jesus Christ. As Christians, we set our hope on the return of Christ, that Jesus is coming back. He will make all things new. He will make every wrong right, and he will take us home to heaven with him, where we'll spend all eternity in maximum joy. And so what is verse 13 saying in a nutshell? Set your hope on heaven. Set your hope on heaven. Now let me give you a definition of hope in the Bible, biblical hope. A hope is eager and joyful expectation that God will fulfill his promises in the future. I'll give it to you again. Hope is eager and joyful expectation that God will fulfill his promises in the future. Now notice this is not the way we normally use the word hope. Usually when we use the word hope, there's an element of uncertainty that we're really gonna get what we want to get. When we use the word hope, we mean, mm, keep my fingers crossed, I wish this is going to happen. Hope for the best kind of hope. But there's always an element of uncertainty. Much like I would say, I hope that the Warriors win the championship next year again. I want that. It looks good. But we just don't know. The Celtics want revenge. The Clippers have added to their super team. Draymond loves getting thrown out of games. And so there's, there's an element of uncertainty here. We don't know. But in contrast to that, biblical hope is a guarantee. It's 100% going to happen. Therefore, it's not a wish. It's an expectation. It is an anticipation. It is a looking forward to what is going to happen. And here we have an anticipation, an expectation that Jesus is going to come back and take us to heaven. Here's the problem. Even though hope is a guarantee, we don't always feel that way. Hope is a guarantee. Our future is a guarantee. But our emotions waver. Our belief in that truth 
wavers. Jesus is coming back. Guaranteed. We're going to walk on streets of gold. Guaranteed. We'll be reunited with loved ones in Christ. We're going to spend time with Moses and Paul and Joshua and Peter. We're going to live in a world without sin, without sickness. We're never going to get sick again. We're going to have bodies that don't have a sin nature. And we're going to see Jesus face to face, all guaranteed. But we don't always believe it's a guarantee. Sometimes we doubt. Sometimes we're just not that excited about this truth. Sometimes we just get so caught up with the busyness of this life that we don't even think about the life to come. So Peter seeks to remedy this. He seeks to strengthen our weak hope. And he does so with some strong language here. He says, set your hope fully, fully. He wants to strive for full hope, big hope, complete hope. Expect that Jesus is coming back. And expect it more. Expect it more eagerly. Expect it more joyfully. Now, how do we do that? It's hard. Because what's being commanded here is something mental, something cognitive, something in our minds. It's not something physical that we can just do. Uh, Peter is not saying, stack the chairs, sweep the floor, learn guitar. He's not saying anything physical. The command is to the mind, to think a certain way. So how do you hope more? How do you hope better? Well, it's not simply by sheer willpower. It's not by saying, I will hope more. I will hope more. I will hope more. Force myself to hope more. That's just not going to work. What do you do to hope more, to hope better, to set your hope fully on what is to come, as Peter says? How do you do that? You do that by thinking about and envisioning the object of your hope. You take the time it takes to think about the specifics and the details of what you're hoping for. To take the time to think about heaven. As Paul says in Colossians 3, to set your mind on things above. And that's going to get you more excited. That's going to help you set your hope on what is to come. Now let me give you an example. A little kid is having a birthday party next week. And what, what, what happens in that week that gets him excited for his birthday party. It's, well, not that, it's not that he sits down and says, I will hope in my birthday party. I, I will resolve to hope in my birthday party. I commit to get excited about my birthday party. No, that's not what he does. Instead, he simply envisions in detail what the party's gonna be like. He just imagines what his birthday party's gonna be like. Oh, it's gonna be great. Chocolate cake and ice cream. Presents, all for me. Maybe someone will get me that Nerf gun that I've been hoping for. My friends are all going to be here. Mike, David, Brent, John, 
Andrew, Kevin, Ryan, they're all going to be there. We're going to play basketball. My mom bought a pinata. We're going to whack that thing open. I get to take the first whack, and I'm the only one who's going to whack that thing. Candy's going to spill everywhere. You see, as he imagines what his birthday party is going to be like, he gets more excited. His heart gets attached to what's going to happen in the future. And in the same way, to set our hope fully on what is to come, to, to get our hearts excited for heaven, we need to take the time to think about it, to think about what it's going to be like there, to think about what we're going to do there, to think about in a little bit more detail the object of our hope, what exactly we're hoping in. Let me give you a description of what heaven will be like. This is from a book uh, entitled Heaven by Randy Alcorn. And in this book, he describes heaven this way. This, this section is entitled, What Won't Be in Heaven? And this is what he writes. No death, no suffering. No funeral homes, abortion clinics, or psychiatric wards. No rape, missing children, or drug rehabilitation centers. No bigotry, no muggings or killings. No worry or depression or economic downturns. No wars, no unemployment. No anguish over failure and miscommunication. No con men, no locks. No pain, no boredom, no arthritis, no handicaps, no cancer. No taxes, no bills, no computer crashes, no bombs, no drunkenness, no traffic jams and accidents, no unwanted emails, close friendships, but no clicks, laughter, but no put-downs. That's the place I want to be. And if you, if you just take the time to think about these things, to ponder these things, to, to linger over these truths, you'll find that your hope will grow. Your hope will flourish. So in application of this first point, uh, I have a challenge for you, and it's to take some time this week. Doesn't have to be long, five, ten minutes. Uh, do it for your devotional time. And... Commit that time exclusively to reading a passage or two about heaven and praying exclusively about heaven. Five to ten minutes to do that. And you'll be well on your way. You'll take a big step forward in doing what Peter has called you to do in setting your hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed in Jesus Christ. So, take some time to consider your future hope. Secondly, if you're saved and you know it, abandon your past life. Verse 14. Abandon your past life. Let's read verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That word conformed means to be shaped, to be molded in a certain form. 
We are to resist being shaped by the passions and desires of our former life, our our pre-conversion life. Because before Christ, we were passionate about sin. We had a strong desire for sin. We loved sin. We were engaged in sin. We didn't want anything else but sin. But then we got saved, and that all changed. We're different now. When Peter says, act like you're different. Now, you guys remember back in the day, playing with Play-Doh. And Play-Doh is something that you can squish and roll and make into different shapes. Uh, If you're one of the weird kids, you eat the Play-Doh. But you know that when you put Play-Doh back into its container and you plop it out again, it takes the form, the cylindrical shape of the container. And then you had those molds, you would mold this Play-Doh into a star or a heart or a gingerbread man or something like that. And that's an illustration of what Peter is saying. Peter is saying that your former life of passion for sin, that's the container. You are the Play-Doh. And sin is trying to shove you back into the container to take its form, to look like you looked before you got saved. And Peter says, don't don't let sin do that. Don't be conformed. Don't be shaped to your former life. Abandon your past life. Flee from it. At the end of verse 14, Peter calls this past pre-conversion stage, a time of ignorance. And that's a good description. We were ignorant of the gospel. We were ignorant of our creator. We were clueless as to our purpose in life. We didn't know Christ and we didn't know his love. One of my favorite shows as a kid was the Ninja Turtles. I know they made them into movies and I haven't watched any of them except, except, except the original, uh, which was awesome. But that was mainly about the cartoon. And because the, the Ninja Turtles lived in a sewer, as a little kid, I remember thinking that it'd be so cool to live in a sewer. But now as a grown-up, you know that's simply not the case. But imagine with me if you were born into and had to live in a sewer. It's cold, it's wet all the time, it's dark, um, you got to sleep on cold slab of concrete, you have to eat whatever you can find down there, rats, whatever garbage makes its way down there. It's just absolutely horrid conditions. But then imagine one day you are rescued from a very kind-hearted family, and you're able to go into their home, uh, take, a, take a hot shower, put on some new clothes, you get your own room, your own bed, you're adopted as a part of the family, you have brothers and sisters, you have three square meals a day, and life is completely changed now. Well, well that would be amazing, but here's the problem. One day you wake up, and you think to yourself, man, I really miss the sewer. I miss 
eating rats. I, I miss having a, a cold slab of concrete for a bed. I miss that feeling of walking around in wet socks all the time. I miss the, the amazing smell down there. And so you move back to the sewer. Peter is simply saying, don't go back. Don't go back to the sewer. You've been adopted into God's own family. Things are so much better here. Granted, the old life might be more comfortable. You're used to it. Uh, granted, the old life has some pleasures, small and temporary pleasures of sin, but it can't compare to the great and lasting joys of being a part of the family of God. So Peter's saying, abandon your past life. Abandon the former sin that you once were passionate about. So is there a sin? Is there a sin that characterized your life before Christ that you're still hanging on to today? Is there a sin that you still have in the very corner of your heart? Maybe a sin that no one knows about that you just can't seem to give up. The scriptures call you today to abandon that sin. So uh, I have a second challenge for you guys, a second challenge that I hope that you'll take seriously this week, and that is to identify that sin. Take some time to identify that sin, and it probably won't be very hard. You're probably already thinking of it. And then meet with a trusted friend and confess that sin to him or her. It could be a spouse, it could be a best friend, someone in your small group, someone that you trust. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other. So put that sin on the table before one other person and talk it out with them and have them pray for you and with you that you will abandon that sin. And don't, don't do five sins don't overwhelm yourself, just one sin. And don't tell five people, tell one person, someone that you love, someone that you trust, confess that sin to them and take a step forward in allowing that person to help you abandon that sin. Well, the third command we see uh, that this text uh, really builds on uh, if you're saved and you know it, first, consider your future hope. Second, abandon your past life. And now, third, imitate your holy father. Uh, we're going to see how this last command is built on the first two. Uh, take a look at verses 15 to 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Here's a simple yet intense call to holiness. The word holy means to cut, to separate, to be set apart, to be distinct. So this command to be set apart is to be set apart from the world, set apart from sin, distinct from the non-Christians around you. Uh, let's make three observations about this call to holiness. First of all, it is all-inclusive. 
It is comprehensive. It includes everything. Verse 15 says to be holy in all your conduct. You don't need to do a Greek study of the word all to know that it means all. It means everything. Be holy in your life, in all your thinking, in all your words, in all your decisions, every minute of every day. Not I'll be holy in most areas, but this one area where I really like my sin, I'm, I'm going to keep it. Not I'm going to be holy at church and at church functions when, I'm, when I know people are going to call me out in my sin, but I won't be holy in, around my family. I won't be holy around my roommates. I won't be holy when the door is shut and I'm all by myself. No, this is a comprehensive, all-inclusive call to holiness. Secondly, not only this uh, is a comprehensive command, it is an emphasized command. Uh, this is not a new command. Peter is not the first one to say it. It was said in Leviticus already. In fact, it was given three times. Leviticus 11.44, 19.2, and 20 verse 7. And then in Matthew 5, Jesus says something very similar. You therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's Matthew 5, 48. So three times in Leviticus, one time in Matthew from the lips of Jesus, and one time here from the Apostle Peter, five times is this call to be holy as God is holy. This is an emphasized command. The scriptures throw the spotlight on this command, waves its hand, says, do not miss this. Third, this is an impossible command. It's an impossible command. Peter goes hard. He doesn't hold back. This is not a wimpy command. He goes for the very top. It's not just be holy. It's be as holy as God who is perfectly Distinct, set apart, pure. Yeah, 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 how, how God is completely holy, yeah, be, be like that. So this is an impossible command, but it's in the mirror of God's perfect holiness that we see just how far short we fall. It's in the mirror of his holiness that we see our filth and our unholiness, uh, just how much of the dirt of the world has caked on to our hearts as well. So why are we so unholy? Well, we start to play the blame game, right? Well, you know, it's because I'm, I'm, I live in the generation of smartphones. Woe is me. There has never been so much temptation. We just have access to so many different things that other people from other generations, Christians from other generations, didn't have to worry about. We blame the culture. Oh, this culture is just so wicked. Uh, just the sex-driven culture. Oh, entertainment. Netflix and YouTube and all these streaming services. Just so much filth out there. We blame our upbringing. Oh, my parents, you know, they never emphasized Christianity. And my high school friends, they corrupted me. Start to play the blame game, but we know that at the end of the day, we have to point the finger at ourselves. That the problem is not as much the world so much as it is our own 
sinful hearts and as Christians are weak, anemic, and half-hearted pursuit of holiness. So how do we work on this? How do we make our pursuit of holiness a run, uh, a sprint? How do we do this more fervently? And I mentioned that this command in verses 15 to 16 builds on the first two. And so if you seek to apply the first two commands, then you're well on your way to obeying the third one as well. So again, I go back to the two challenges that I have for you, and I hope that you'll pursue them, that you'll take some time this week and do one devotional time on heaven. Read about heaven, pray about heaven, and secondly, that you'll identify one sin from your past life that still plagues you today, put it on the table before a trusted friend, tell them about this habit that dies hard, and, and bring them with you in the fight and in the prayers that God will help you repent from this sin. And if you do these two things, you're going to take a giant leap forward in this impossible quest to be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. But you will get closer. You will move one step up in imitating your holy Father. And this is what this last command is all about. It tells us to put forth maximum effort in reaching the highest possible level of holiness. But be careful. Be careful, guys. Three commands given in this text are great things to obey. They are great goals to have. But the three commands in this passage make absolutely terrible ways of becoming a Christian. What we have before us is not in any way, shape, or form instructions for how someone gets saved, uh, how someone becomes a Christian. Ephesians 2, 8-9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so don't get mixed up. As we talked about pursuing holiness and running hard after God and putting away sin and being as holy as possible, being holy like your God is holy, don't get mixed up. And think that this is how you earn favor with God that this is how you earn a ticket into heaven, that this is what it means to be a Christian. Interestingly, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, uh, sorry, 1, verse 4, uh, Paul will speak to very sinful Christians and he'll call them holy and blameless. And so, friends, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you have received the grace of God through his Son, you're already holy. You're already holy. But paradoxically, Peter says, you ain't holy. How does that work? Positionally, you are holy. As you stand before God, you are holy. Uh, in his eyes, 
as he sees you, you are holy because your sins have been washed away because the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the righteousness that he earned with his perfect life is placed on you. And so you are clothed, you are robed with the perfect righteousness of Christ. And that's how God sees you and so he accepts you as holy into his holy heaven. Positionally, you are holy, but in practice, you are not holy. And so the Christian life, this life of pursuing sanctification is to, as best as possible in practice, match your position. And that's what verses 15 to 16 is all about. But good works, pursuing holiness, this is not how you get saved. This is not the root of salvation. It is the fruit. Good works are not the root of salvation. They are the fruit. This is what happens to your life after you get saved. This is uh, what blossoms after you are truly saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Uh, It is simply through belief. And so if you're not a Christian here today, I hope that you don't mix that up. And I hope that you've seen a little bit about what it does mean to live the Christian life, that we We have joy, we have anticipation, we have an expectation that we're going to heaven one day. We know what's going to happen to us after this life. And we put away our former life, we put away our former life of sin because we know that those pleasures are small, temporary, and they dishonor our creator. And we move forward to living a holy life of greater joy pleasing the one who saved us. So this this is what it means to live the Christian life and Uh, If you're not a Christian, if you're visiting with us here today, then I hope that's the kind of life you want. Because this is the life that your creator calls you to have. And so if you want this kind of life, then then I hope that you'll uh, stick around a little bit and and chat with some people around you. Uh, Pastor Mark is there. Um, I'm going to stick around. And uh, we would love to speak with you about what what it means to be a Christian, how to place your faith in Jesus Christ, because, oh, this life uh, is the, the greatest life. This is the greatest news you could ever hear, and your eternity is secure. Uh, you have joy, you have heaven, but most importantly of all, you have Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord, and as your best friend. And let's bow in a word of prayer. Uh, Father, thank you so much for Uh, the tremendous promises in this text, uh, the promise of heaven, the promise of joy, and the promise that if we placed our faith in you, we have so great a salvation. And God, we confess that our lives so often throughout the week do not match up to this salvation that you've given to us. So Lord, I pray that your spirit would embed gospel truth deeper into our hearts For those of us who have grown cold to the cross, kindle afresh this gospel truth so that we're more aware of it throughout our days and so it completely transforms everything that we do. In Christ's name we pray, amen.